<laughs> All right, so yeah, we do have a couple extra copies over there in the attendance there if you'd like to pass that around. But I'll go ahead and get us started off in prayer, and um, we've got a little bit to pick up on, and then uh, the video, so got got part of the video to show you. So we'll go to the Lord here in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful to be able to come together. We're praying for the safety of everyone today, especially in the midst of this cold. Um, please refresh our hearts with your word. Remind us, Father, of your truths and your faithfulness and grace toward us. Thank you for all things, and please uh, be manifested in our lives today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last time we had um, talked about the process of the Bible going from the original scrolls and manuscripts to the form that we have it today. And so today... Um, I'd like to talk, just finish up in this part with uh, translations. So talking about principles of a good translation. So there in your notes, it's um, near the end. And uh, to, to understand this, um, so to understand translations, it's it's helpful to remember that there's uh, a few different types. You know, when we talk about a translation, this will help you make sense of what the difference is between those. So there's some that we call a formal equivalent. And what that means is, the, the thought behind that is they're trying to capture, in a sense, a, a more of a word-for-word -word philosophy. Now, if you've done anything with a foreign language, you know it's not as simple as pull open a dictionary, you know, and like say you're going from Spanish to English. It's not as simple as like you take a sentence in English and then you go to a Spanish dictionary and then like what's the mean in Spanish and you put that in and man in Spanish and then you go put that word in and runs and you go to sp uh, Spanish and put that word in too and you go to Spanish and put that word in. That's not how translation works. My first Spanish class I took, I tried to do that. That teacher was looking at me pretty funny. <laughs> I thought, I was like, man, this is going to be so easy. Just go to the dictionary and just do it like that. And you, you realize, like, in some languages, you know, you don't need some of those words. Like, the word has that in there. Like, it'll be a combination of a, a verb and, and just some things will be built into that. It'll, it'll capture, like, who's speaking, you know, the, the um, masculine or feminine well, so you won't need he did this because what the words you use will have that in it and you would use a different word for she, if that makes sense. So whenever we're going from like, especially biblical languages to a language like English, it's not, nobody can just go to a dictionary and translate it like that. So there's no such thing as like a complete word for word translation. Um, if there was, you wouldn't be able to really read it, right? So the editors of your Bible have you know, smooth sentences out. They've added some words in there just to make it readable. Otherwise, it would pretty be, you know, kind of useless for you. But the formal translations at least seek to, to kind of capture, you know, the more word-for-word -word sense. So like the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, or the King James Version, we would call these this formal equivalent type of translation. There's another uh, philosophy of translation, and it would be a dynamic equivalent. 
So the um, dynamic equivalent would, their philosophy is more of a thought for thought. So, you know, if, if Troy gives me a, a big long paragraph about what he did yesterday, the word for word philosophy is going to go through and try to keep that as close to what he said as possible in that order. Whereas the dynamic equivalent will try to capture the idea of it. So it may not have the sentence exactly like Troy said it, but it'll have the thought there. So the, the NIV is an example of that. And you notice that. I mean, if you read you know, the ESV and then you go to the NIV, you notice a difference in the reading style. And that's because the NIV is, is more of that thought-for-thought thought kind of a translation. So a lot of people will ask the question, you know, what's the best translation? Uh, and it's, the answer is not as simple as, here's one. <laughs> it's kind of like, what's, you know, what are you looking for? What are you trying to do with this? So if you're um, really trying to go through the Gospels or the Epistles where everything really hangs on a word or even, um, I mean, even the tense of a word, you know, where you're, you're trying to be very precise, then a translation with that's formal equivalent would be the best for that like the New American Standard or the, the ESV. The, the New American Standard is a little bit harder to read. It's just kind of clunky. And so the um, English Standard Version has kind of smoothed some of that out a little bit. Uh, you know, you used to have, um, it used to be the, the hardcore Southern Baptist Bible, HCSB, and now they've just changed it to the CSB. So that one's making um, kind of a resurgence, the Christian Standard Bible, which is, which is a very good translation as well. Uh, but, you know, there's other times where this dynamic equivalent can be helpful. So if you're like reading through that passage and you're just like, man, I just still can't figure out what this is saying, reading through it in something like the NIV can be useful. And to be fair, there's plenty of places where the NIV actually is sometimes even better than the ESV. Um, I can think of a few places where they actually get some things Oh, they say it better than what maybe some of like the ESV does at times. So we don't want to think of this as like NIV bad, these other translations good. You know, NIV is a good translation, um, but it's just when you get to some parts where you're trying to be really accurate, it's not maybe the most helpful for that. Uh, then a paraphrase, that would be like the message, and, and that's not even a translation. That's just trying to paraphrase something. So does this make sense between the, the philosophies of translation there? So, but it's still good to ask the question, what are the good qualities of a translation? You know, what should a good translation have to, to make it one? And so first, it should be based on the best uh, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. So I don't know if some of you may have grown up with the King James Version. Anybody grown up with that in churches like that? So... Um, yeah, you'll run into, you know, churches here and there, uh, especially in the South, that are very big on the King James Version. They're, they're like the King James only ones. And some of those can be just out of preference and others of those. I mean, I know some that they'll meet you at the door. And if you don't have a King James Version, you're not welcome to come into that church. So there can, you know, there's there can be a lot of um, just love for the King James Version. And it's not a bad translation, right? But there are some places in it, you know, that it's kind of helpful to know about. So if you have your Bibles, uh, take a look at 1 John 5, 7. 1 John 5, 7. And if, if one of you can read that for me, please.
So this is not the Gospel of John. This is 1 John, which is toward the very end of your New Testament, there before Revelation. So 1 John 5, 7. There are three things, for there are three that testify. Yep. And then the next verse then was verse 8. Oh, sorry. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Okay. Now, if you're reading that from the King James Version, it has it, it states it a little bit differently. So I don't know if anybody has a KJV in here. I think I might Okay. Yeah. So it says there... There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Okay. Verse 7. Okay. And verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Okay. So on first glance, this can seem like the modern translations have just taken out the Trinity. And if you're watching a short little YouTube video, which somebody will probably send you at some point, you would see, well, here's an example of a modern translation taking out the Word of God. They've just removed the Trinity from the Bible, right? Because in the KJV, I mean, that's pretty clear. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost is another word for Holy Spirit, right? So they just, the ESV, NIV, New American Standard, all these other translations don't have that in there. Uh, so they just took out the Trinity from the Bible, right? Uh, no. <laughs> no. So what happened in that verse right there was um, this man by the name of Erasmus was trying to be the first person to publish the first printed copy of the Greek New Testament. So at this point in 1511, there were only handwritten copies. And so there was a race to see who could, who could come up with the first printed copy. Well, the Greek text that he was using was known as the Textus Receptus. That would be the basis that the King James Version used. And uh, he was having a lot of difficulty finding some manuscripts on some different books, like in Revelation, um, for example. So, like, there were parts of Revelation in his manuscript, like in, in the documents he had, that didn't even have some of the verses. So he had to go to the Latin and then back-translate that into Greek, which is a problem right there, right? Because you don't even know, you don't, if you can't see the original Greek... Now you're just looking at the Latin to try to determine what the Greek was. That's a big problem. Uh, so, you know, again, at this point in time, um, people were using the Latin Vulgate. We talked about that last time. They were really big on the Latin. Um, you, didn't, you don't want to, you know, they were very reluctant to, um, to do anything different with that. Uh, so this, this, is, this phrase here in 1 John 5, 7 is known as the Comma Johannian. Um, remember, it's just a very famous phrase right there. So Erasmus, the Greek manuscripts that he is looking at do not have this phrase in it, uh, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. And no manuscript of Greek that he examined had that phrase. It was only found in the Latin Vulgate. And so when Erasmus comes out with you know, kind of his initial copy, he gets challenged the Roman Catholics were challenging him for not having that phrase in there, um, the, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, right? So these three are one because it, it was pretty important to them. Well, that's pretty clear mention of the Trinity here. That's got to be in there. So Erasmus says, um, all right, you know, kind of the story goes like this, is, is like he told them that if they could produce a Greek manuscript that had that phrase, then he would put it in his copy, like his edition, 
Well, lo and behold, the very next day, or, or very shortly after, a little package shows up on his doorstep, so to speak. And guess what? It's a, a Greek um, manuscript that has that phrase in there. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> it just showed up. I mean, the Lord delivered it from heaven for him. Uh, so very, uh, that, this manuscript is actually in the Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Um, it's a very highly suspect text that appears to have been created to include that phrase. And only four Greek manuscripts have been found that contain that phrase, and none of them any earlier than the 16th century. But Erasmus is a man true to his word. The thing shows up, he puts it into the third edition, and that made its way into the King James Version. Now you may ask, why is this important, right? Why, why does this matter that you know, this later manuscript suddenly has this thing and, and it gets put in there and then it shows up in the King James Version? It's because in the second, third, and fourth centuries when they were having all these debates over the Trinity, no one used 1 John 5, 7, no one. And wouldn't it seem that if Christians are really trying to protect the Trinity and make an argument that it's biblical, that if there was this really in the manuscripts, that wouldn't that be just an open and closed case? Like we all just reference 1 John 5, 7, and there's no more discussion. It's right there. But the fact that no one does, doesn't that seem a little suspect? Like maybe it just wasn't in the original document. Maybe because of some theological bias, or because of some other reasons, it got added in there, you know, you, you don't want that. And so even modern translations, uh, except for the New King James Version, omit this part of 1 John 5, 7. Why? Because they don't believe it's original. When asked why the New King James uh, Version publishers included this phrase, they said, get this, we won't sell Bibles without it. So the only reason they included it in there was not because they thought it should be in there, but because they wanted to sell Bibles. Seem a little problematic? Yeah. So we want, trans we want um, translations that are based on the best Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Um, and that's why if you, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. And just as a side note, I um, want to show you something there. So John chapter 8. What do you notice uh, at the start of John 8? What's that? Number 8. <laughs> <laughs> he just went to the Mount of Olives. Yeah, he was there quite a bit. Might indicate it's not reliable. Mm -hmm. Are the earliest and most reliable manuscripts... Um, now their ancient witnesses do not have John 753 through 811. Yeah, yep. So, yeah, so your, your, your modern translations now have brackets around maybe parts that uh, are not believed to be original. And, and so I don't want to scare you. We, we as Christians need to be honest about this. We don't want to pretend like this isn't the case, but it doesn't change anything in terms of our understanding of the Bible or the inerrancy or infallibility. So there's that section in there from really chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, chapter 11. That, that does not appear in the earlier manuscripts. It only appears later. So probably what happened is 
um, you remember the scribes, you know, in the copying process, they would make notes off to the margin, and sometimes those notes would get worked back into the body of the text. So it'd be like if you were writing a letter, and then you put a little side note there, and you give it to somebody else, and somebody else, and somebody else, you can't ask, eventually you can't go back and ask the person who wrote it before you, like, why is this off to the side right here? Did they just run out of room? Did they forget to put it in there? You got all these questions, right? And so it gets worked back into the main body when it shouldn't have been there. So it's not to say we don't believe that this story happened. That's, that's not the question, right? I, I can very well believe that this account really did happen. It's just that John's original gospel did not contain this account of the, the woman right here and you know this, this incident that happened right there. So that's why um, if we were teaching through John, you know, we'd, we'd make mention of this. This most likely is not original to John's text. Um, again, not to say it's not true, but we just want you to know that, right? Because we're being honest with everything. So Mark, for example, if you notice, if, if you take a look to the, at the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark has a shorter end and a longer end. And you're, you've got brackets in your Bible in chapter 16. that again say the same thing. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And so there's a question there, was that originally part of Mark's gospel or not? Um, I mean, I think it does matter to some degree because in verse 18, this is where a lot of the charismatics will, will get some theology, 17 and 18 in chapter 16. It says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So, I mean, if you, if you think that that part of Mark is original and should be in there, you know, it makes sense that you're going to be able to fit that in. And, but if you don't think that this part of Mark was originally in there, there's just going to be more caution with with the longer ending of Mark there. So there's more examples of like that we can find, but the, the point being, none of those affect any major Christian doctrines. Like it doesn't change our faith at all. Uh, so secondly, um, translations should be based on the latest knowledge of languages and cultures because languages change over time. So there, there will not be one single translation for I mean, unless the Lord comes back, there won't be a single translation for the rest of time because languages change. You know, my kids are, are now saying words to me that I have to look up in the dictionary, and that's kind of scary. Uh, some of the new ones are, um, let's see, uh, yeeted. They yeeted it. I'm thinking made bread, you know, what? <laughs> no. Or, you know, it's just stuff like that that you're like, Boy, I don't, I don't know what that means. You know, like I gotta have a different kind of dictionary here. Um, in James, for example, in the King James version, it talks about the one who wears the gay clothing. Well, you say that now, and you're gonna get a lot of funny looks, right? So, gay back then, when the King James version, when that language was there, means something different than what we think of it today. And so the, the challenge with the King James Version is, again, not that it's a bad translation. It's just that words change in meaning. And if you don't know the word has changed, you will get very confused. Because sometimes you can, you can look at the word and you can say, I don't think it, I think the meaning has changed from what 
that seems to say, but other times you don't know that, and then you kind of get off track. So, for example, I came to awareness of, boy, I need to think through some things. I was in, in a church, and um, it was a King James Version church, and uh, the, the pastor was um, preaching out of uh, Ephesians 2. And Ephesians 2 in the King James says, and you he has quickened. And then he proceeded to go on and tell us, like, well, quicken means to make faster. And he proceeded to go on about being made faster. And I knew enough at that time to think, that's not what that word means. You know, it means to be made alive, not to go faster. See, but if you don't know that, you're going to get, you're going to go off track. And so a lot of folks who use the KJV will go back to the Webster's 18-something dictionary to try to find the meaning of the word. And then, you know, but it's like, you don't have to do all that. You can use a modern translation that's done that for you already. We can really simplify these things. So languages change over time. So even the ESV at some point, you know, will have to be, there'll be another translation that'll come along. Uh, third, translation should be accurate. So accurate may not mean readable, um, but it should be accurate. Like the New American Standard is one of the most accurate ones, but it's definitely not the most readable translations. So, so you do want a translation that's accurate. And a paraphrase, again, is not necessarily accurate. It's just a paraphrase. Uh, fourth, um, kind of related to this, it should be understandable. So if you can't understand it at the end of the day, why did we do that, right? If we give you a translation that you just can't understand or read, I don't, I don't know what it's there for. Uh, fifth, it should be contemporary. So the King James Version was contemporary language of 1611. But again, words in the KJV no longer have the same meaning. Like charity, you know, we use that. You know, what's that mean, charity? Uh, today we would say love. And you've got your James 2.3 in there. Um, six, translation should be universal, not limited to a narrow dialect. So you want it to have a, a broad audience. You don't want only one small little group to be able to understand it. Um, seventh, it should be dignified and not use crude language. So there are you know, a number of, quote, um, translations that, that are coming out that just are not very dignified, such as the Cotton Patch Bible. The Cotton Patch Bible is written in Southern dialect. So it describes the setting like down South. You know, so instead of Jesus crossing the Jordan River, you know, we talk about Jesus, but it, it would use like Southern language. Like Jesus goes into Dixie, um, meets some kinfolk, and, you know, would use like Southern words and slangs and even geography to describe everything. I saw one just the other day, uh, the pirate translation. So the pirate translation um, has everything in pirate talk. <laughs> no, it is for a good, a good little chuckle, but um, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, but that's not like a dignified um, translation right there. Or the Berenstein Bears Holy Bible, you know, but that's okay. We don't need to use those things. Uh, eighth, it should avoid theological biases. So like the Jerusalem Bible, um, at one time a Roman Catholic translation uh, had Matthew 125. Um, and, and, you know, although, and even though he knew not Mary, she brought forth a son. So there's some uh, theology that's brought into that translation that 
reinforces what they believe. So with the Catholics, for example, it's the perpetual virginity of Mary, for example, that was um, kind of brought into the text, at least with that translation. The, the famous one would be um, Jeho the Jehovah's Witness Bible, uh, so the New World Translation. And that one is full of theological biases. So the, the big one would be John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, if you turn in your Bibles to John 1.1, 1, 1, you'll see what a big difference this makes. So if, if they ever come to your door, one thing you'll notice is they will never use your Bible. They will want you to use their Bible. And there's a reason for that. It's the New World Translation, and in uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, can someone read what John 1.1 1, 1 really says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, good, good. Okay, so there you see the Word is both God, but then there's a distinction from God. So you have both of those things in there. Now, the New World Translation says this. So listen to this. In the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God. Now get this, and the word was a God. So they've inserted a in there to make it not God, but a God. Because in the Jehovah's Witness theology, uh, Jesus is a God, but he is not God. I mean, he's not God in the same sense, right? So they put that in there. And then they argue just, well, and they'll try to go, you know, Greek and, and everything else with you. And it's, but they're not consistent in that translation. Because a few verses later, um, there's another phrase that if, if that was really true, they should have translated in the same way, but they don't because uh, they don't want it to sound like there's many gods. So it's like on one hand, they, they do this. Then on the other hand, they do something different. So the New World Translation, it was interesting because um, they would never reveal who the uh, translators were with it. And it finally got taken to court because um, they kept it a big secret. Like who actually translated this? Did they have any credentials? And it came out that the two folks who did really didn't know the original languages. So it's like, you don't even know Greek and Hebrew, but yet you're claiming to translate it from that. How well do we think that's going to go, right? <laughs> so in your, in your Bibles, like all the Bibles you use, at the very beginning, there's going to be a list of the people who translated it, who worked on the team to translate this. Um, and so you want, uh, you, you want kind of a broad, in, in some sort of sense, you want sort of a broader spectrum. Um, if you have only a couple translators, you, you might kind of wonder about that. Is like, is this really going to be the best? Or if maybe, you know, if they're all, um, if they're all uh, charismatic, for example, or they're all Southern Baptist, or they're all whatever, of one particular dom denomination, you're going to maybe start to have some, not to say that, I'm not saying that it's going to be wrong, I'm just saying you want people from a broad enough base, I mean, I'm talking conservative Christians here, um, right, but it, you, you want enough people involved that if somebody says, hey, I think this should be like this, that there's going to be enough other folks in there to say, you know, they're going to have those debates and, and work through that. Uh, then printing errors should be corrected. So the famous example of this is um, a couple famous examples. In 1631, there was a King James Version translation that forgot uh, not, you know, just one word, which doesn't seem to be a big deal, unless you put it in one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt commit adultery, 
Oops. <laughs> they were fine and went out of business. So you've got to be very accurate if you're making a Bible translation. Or in uh, the printer's Bible, let the children be killed. Ooh, <laughs> that's a bad one too. So, uh, Tenth, it should avoid gender-neutral language. And gender-neutral language, um, that I remember when that kind of came on the scene. It's been, been a little while ago, but... Uh, at that particular time, you had the TNIV. Now that's kind of faded away now. But you, you have these gender-neutral Bibles. And so what they do is they take out you know, masculine or feminine, and they just make it gender-neutral. So it's like if it says men, they might put people. Or you know, kind of like that kind of language right there. Um, and what happens with that is it can obscure the meaning of passages. So like Hebrews, for example, was, is, was trying to draw a connection between, Jesus, between the first Adam and Jesus. But when you make it gender neutral, you lose, that, um, you lose that connection. So like in the NIV, it says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? So that son of man language goes back to like Psalm 8. Um, you know, it, it brings you back to the Old Testament where that language is used. But the TNIV says, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? So this translation removes any connection with Jesus, the Son of Man. Uh, for, or, for example, um, in Hebrews 12, 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by the Father? And the TNIV, TNIV had said, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their parents? So that's not even what the Greek words were saying right there. That was an improper usage of them. They just, because they wanted to be gender neutral, they just changed some, some things in there, which changed the meaning of it. So I would agree there's, there's at times where, like the ESV, for example, will say brothers, and your Bible might have a little footnote that, that says this word can also refer to men and women. In a place like that, that's fine, right? You don't have to say just brothers. You could say, I mean, you, could, you could include both of those. But there's a lot of places where it's there for a reason, and we don't just want to make it gender neutral just because we're afraid of that. So those are some um, qualities of a good translation. There, in the end, you have uh, some evaluation of translation, some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses. Um, but the good news is, you know, today there's a lot of good translations out there. So any, any questions on any of that or any of the translations? Mm -hmm. I'm surprised we have as good a translation as we do. Mm -hmm. uh, I've run across a lot of, a lot, quite a few figures of speech in the Bible that are improperly translated. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it helps to know what they really mean because it adds color, it adds understanding. But, uh, yeah. Like I say, well, I don't think everybody here is carrying a full deck of cards. <laughs> Translate that into Chinese a thousand years from now, what are you going to get? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not what it means, that's for sure. Yep. <laughs> so I guess just quick going back to like 
you know, the different translation versions of the Bible, like, um, like for one, like using the ESV and then going and like using the message, like what would be like, you know, like, because how, you know, paraphrasing is not necessarily the translation of it and you're paraphrasing everything from it. So what would like, just for like quick, like, oh, I need to read something real quick and I want to paraphrase everything so it's short and you don't have time. I guess I'm just wondering on, you know. Sometimes I'll use, like, I'll read a passage in the message if I want, like, a supplemental way to read or interpret it. But always, like, either starting and ending back with, like, your ESV and NIV. But sometimes, like, the way the message is written is very relatable to our language, but you have to mm-hmm. remember it wasn't that exact translation. So it's almost like that. Yeah. Yeah, like a, another tool. For- yeah. Uh-huh. That's why I said like a supplement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great way. Yeah, yeah. that yep. makes sense. Mm-hmm. So some some folks like the um, the NLT, the New Living Translation, and that's not it's not a paraphrase, but it's it's very. I mean, it's um, in some senses it's like you know pretty simple, and so you wouldn't use it for like if you were trying to do an actual Bible study, but it could be. A great way to kind of get like I'm just trying to have a you know I just like to get a feel for this passage or or something and without a lot of complex words and and I just need it you know kind of simplified so maybe like read that first and like okay I I understand what that's saying now that makes sense of the bigger flow of this passage now I'll go to you know a, a stronger translation to to maybe see like now that I have that general feel for it now it can make a little more sense yeah. <laughs> Well, I think you're going to like this um, video that we're going to start on here. Um, so he's going to be uh, bringing us through the Bible. And, and so today we won't have time for the whole thing, but um, we'll be starting in the Old Testament. So what he's going to do is give you a framework for understanding the Bible as a whole big picture. So enough of me talking. Let's pull him up. If it didn't turn off. Yeah, I had it all ready to go. We'll try to. 